Hello and welcome to the menu, Monocle Radio's food and drink program. I am Markus Hippi. This week we are visiting a new restaurant that's about to open at one of London's most iconic locations at the National Theatre. I think when you go to the theatre, you, you want it to be kind of bustle, fast, great sounding, but somewhere also that you could come in between the matinees and just have a glass of champagne or gin and tonic or whatever and just really relax. And I loved the idea of how we could bring that to the National Theatre. Then we are off to Portugal to meet a local chef who is working to draw attention to regional dishes and producers from across the country. When you go and you feel the wind, the heat, the hours of labour, the toughness of the ground, the slopes getting up on the slopes down on the valleys, then you feel in your own uh, person how difficult it is. We'll also visit a new exhibition with a subject that has a unique position in global politics, society and culture, milk. Has cow's milk come to be seen as so essential to a diet in the UK? How has milk been used to tie ideas of health to whiteness? And perhaps crucially, how uh, do we value milk and those who produce it? All that here on The Menu on Monocle Radio. Here in the UK, The Marksman, an East London pub house, has been a unique success story since it launched some eight years ago. It has received critical acclaim and Michelin Guide ranked it as the pub of the year too. Now The Marksman's founders have shifted their attention to more central bits of the British capital. Their new restaurant is called Laston and it's opening at an iconic location at the National Theatre in the South bank. I met one of the founders, John Rotherham, at the restaurant when the team was putting in the finishing touches. We were actually invited to take over the space. Um, we went through a process with the National Theatre just to go, you know, for a few little stages of um, sort of interviews and put forward a, a proposal just to say why we would like to take over the restaurant. And for us, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, we love going to the National Theatre, myself and Tom. And first of all, I didn't know there was a restaurant here. So uh, when we found out there was this beautiful space within this wonderful, iconic building, I was like, right, yeah, absolutely, we'd love to take it over. You know, we've always loved coming to the theatre. We've always loved that whole experience of dining out, eating out, you know, post or pre-theatre has been, you know, part of the experience for me to go go to a show. I suppose that it was just that we wanted that whole dining experience of eating out for a theatre and it being a wonderful, glamorous event. We felt that we could offer something on the South Bank because there is, in our opinion, nothing here that you can go to really enjoy that whole experience. So... We thought, okay, let's let's really work on it, and we wanted to work on the design. We wanted to to have that input, and that was key to working with the National Theatre. We had to say, right, okay, for us to actually do this, we need to have our, you know, complete input in how the menu is going to be, how the design of the restaurant is going to be, to put our name to such a thing. And they were amazing. They were totally understanding. They're like, yes, absolutely. This is why we're coming to someone like yourself because we want to be original. We want to be a bold. Um, so we're like, okay, great. So we put a few proposals together and then we started, you know, scribbling around and working on the design of the menu. We're like, actually, this is just screaming out to be a brasserie. This is screaming, you know, I think when you go to the theatre, you, you want it to be kind of 
bustle, fast, great sounding, but somewhere also that you could come in between the matinees and just have a glass of champagne or gin and tonic or whatever and just really relax. And I loved the idea of how we could bring that to the National Theatre. Shall we go and look at the kitchen, by the way? What's special is that I'm, I'm interviewing you about a week before this restaurant is opening, and I'm not used to things being this quiet and calm. Normally there's more panic in the air. Well, um, yeah, there's, <laughs> underneath there's a bit of panic. <laughs> underneath there's a bit of panic, but yeah, we're in the kitchen. This is uh, the main central hub. This is the busy little area. This is where we have our... Uh, what we call the pastry section and garden section. Uh, we, I don't know why we call it garden, I suppose because it's lovely bits of salads and herbs and flowers come from, and radishes and all sorts of comes from that section. Then over there we're going to have the, the grill and the hot starters section. Now tell me more about the menu. What do you think are going to be the highlights? Well, I suppose... And um, is there a theme, by the way? Well, there's a theme. That, you know, it's British Brasserie is, is our theme. Um, and I suppose... The highlights, we're going to have some classics in there from the Marksman. We're always going to have the, 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 you know, the chicken and drill pies or whatever's in season at the moment. It's chicken and wild garlic. We will have the beef and barley buns having a little entry and also that, you know, the custard tart, brown butter and honey custard tarts. But we're doing a little play on it, a play on all of them just to, to mix it up a bit. And then we want to bring some of it, what we hope will be some of its own classics at Lasden. So we'll be working on this wonderful dish, which is smoked eel, and it's served with a, a lovely fried potato, which has layers of beautiful smoked ham and lardo through it. And that's going to be then grated with horseradish and pickled mustard seeds. So that's, we hope, will be one of the most iconic dishes. We're also having in the oyster bar section, so we're going to have a lovely, wonderful raw bar section. So there'll be oysters, there'll be dressed crabs, which will be served with saffron milk buns. There will be chopped up raw sea bass, which is served with amazing little deviled mayonnaises and relishes. Um, so we'll have a little play on that because we think it'd be wonderful again going to the theatre <laughs> to have some smoked salmons and oysters and all those sort of things that, you know, you, you know other parts of the pre-theatre won't, won't offer. So as you mentioned already uh, earlier, there used to be another restaurant in this space, but it seems that we didn't know about that, and probably many other people didn't know either. Um, when you think about the skill and, and the lessons you've learned about running a successful restaurant, in the case of the Marksman, for example, what kind of business lessons have you learned? Um, well, that's an interesting question, actually. Um, I think one thing is what we want to do is, is try and offer a menu that suits everyone. The one thing that we loved and brought to the Marksman is that we really wanted to appeal to a wider audience. Um, I think that's something that I like to do whenever I go out to, to eat, uh, either with my family or friends, is knowing that you'll have a menu that will suit everyone. And that's definitely what I want to bring to Lasden. So what does that mean in practice? Well, that's good. <laughs> in practice, um, that means listening to your audience. That means testing and trialling and getting a real feel for what they like because the National Theatre has a wide and a very strong audience and they've got their own opinions and you know only sensible you know some restaurateurs don't actually listen to that but I think we really want to listen to those regulars and see what they they want we don't want them to feel alienated we want them to embrace what we're trying to do here and I think that is a practice what we always bring to the marksman and certainly we will continue to do that here. How much do you think the London restaurant scene has changed since you 
opened the Marksman, for example, quite a few years ago. Where are we now? Well, as it's changed. It's been fast, actually. It's a really fast change. Um, I think when we opened up the Marksman, uh, it's probably only three, what, three good restaurants probably in that area, East London. And now, you know, you, you pick your handful. Um, you know, since then, you know, Bratton, all, all sorts of other restaurants have opened up. So it's changed really fast. Um, I think, you know, after COVID, a lot of, unfortunately, unlocked restaurants have closed down. But there's still a real appetite to, to go out and, and dine in London scene. And I think it's been, uh, actually, it's been a really good progressive part. You know, everyone says London's not great for food, but I think it's so amazing for food. And every area has its own beautiful now local restaurants. And in central London, you know, Soho's really buzzing. It's, it's great to see. What about the quality of food and the status of British cuisine? Well, I think uh, the quality of the food is very high. I think it's as high as, as any European city. I think it's constantly evolving, which I think is great. I think it needs to embrace that. I think it has, you know, different diversity of cuisine, which again is still really important for a, a major city. But, you know, there's a lot of rubbish out there as well. But I think now there is, you know, you can walk into any part of town and find a good, good meal somewhere. Mm-hmm. I think finally I should ask the question many people may be wondering, where does the name of this restaurant come from? What's the story? Well, we were searching around for names and, you know, this building has, a, you know, a strong, brutalist feel to it. And we kept looking, you know, we didn't want to mention the South Bank because there's a lot of restaurants who use, you know, South Bank Riverside or you know, Ocean View or River View. And we were just like, no, no, it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound right with inside them. And then we didn't want to necessarily reference too much of the theatre because you've got that already with the Olivier or, 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 you know, I think there's enough reference points to the theatre itself. And then we started researching because you know, we delved into the design of it and we started looking at, at Denny Lasden who, 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 you know, designed this wonderful building. And we're like, actually, that's such a wonderful point to reference the architects because that's one of the reasons why we, we love, love the National Theatre is actually... Uh, the person who designed this building. So we're actually, Lasden is such a wonderful name. And we were just testing it, going, let's, you know, with ourselves, you know, and talking to our friends and family, how it sounded. And we felt it was quite a strong, strong enough name to, to put to it. So we, we had to obviously ask the family <laughs> if we could use, use his name, which they very, very kindly said yes. And I think it's great to reference him. And I think, you know, it should be done that we should reference it to him as well. Absolutely. The design of this place has got a special significance considering where we are and, and the way you've been talking about the National Theatre. It's already clear how much you appreciate what this building is like. How did you take that environment into account? Well, it's absolutely. We looked and referenced you know, the brutalist design. I think really we embraced that. We, you know, we looked at Carlo Scarpa's designs and we used that as a reference point and looked back. And we wanted to work with a designer who would work with us because, you know, we've got very strong opinions on, on what this restaurant would feel like. And we wanted to, you know, collaborate with a designer who really embrace that and bring out that brutalist feel in a really subtle way. Being the National Theatre, it was, you know, it's a great listed building. We couldn't drill onto walls. You know, there was lots of, lots of things that we couldn't do. So we had to take that into consideration. And, you know, but we actually 
brought back these windows, which were designed originally in the 70s, which were then taken out again in the 90s, which we found the original archive of the drawings. We're like, wow, let's, let's actually bring that back because that is, they really knew what they were doing back then. And it actually has opened up the restaurant more because this restaurant is not just for the theatre goers. We want this restaurant to be somewhere that you can just pop in. You know, we very much want to embrace the theatre, but we also want to feel that if you're not seeing a show, you could just come in and dine. That's a really important thing to to make clear, actually, so that people don't think this is just for restaurant goers. But I think what's, what's, what also is a very striking thing about this this restaurant is your private dining space where we are now. Do you just want to tell us what we have in front of us? Yeah, it's fantastic. We found this space, actually. It was a, a conference room beforehand. And we're like, wow, what a beautiful space to have in the, inside the restaurant. Let's turn this into a, a private dining room. We very much wanted it to feel... Um, from our experience at the Marksman, is that when guests were joining, we wanted there not to be a bad, bad seat. <laughs> so we worked with a, a good friend of ours called David Ross, who designs furniture. And we discussed how we could have this more oval-shaped dining room so everyone could feel and see each other. And what we're going to do here is more of a family-style service of wonderful shared platters of oysters and lobsters and, and grilled fish that, that everyone can sort of pass around. And also what's great is that we've got this wonderful central light, which is designed by Joe Armitage, who came and spoke to us. He's like, I've got, I've got to, you know, put this light in here because my granddad's a great friend of, of, of Denny Lasden. And I was like, wow, that's, that's incredible. And he was like, yeah. And he showed me photos back in the 60s when they were together and showed the lights. I was like, this, that's definitely got to go in there. That's definitely got to go in there. And it's such a main piece with inside it. And then what we're doing as well, which is still, you know, we're very much in the, the design as a building. We're going to have this wonderful sort of bent cocktail bench along here where we'll have spirits and bottles of wine where the guests can can help themselves to you know have an almost like an honesty bar where they can just sort of help themselves to drinks and feel like this their own space and enjoy that how much more is there to be done before you are opening this restaurant well there's a few snags and twitches um we're, we're very much getting ready to be open the design is ready. The lights are all on. Um, there's a few twigs, but we're, we're ready to go now, I think. John Rotherham there. He is one of the founders of the new restaurant Lasden at the National Theatre in London's South Bank. You are with The Menu on Monocle Radio. Next up in the programme, we venture to Portugal to join acclaimed chef João Rodriguez on a gastronomic tour. This year, the Michelin-starred chef is organising a special residency where each month he prepares a select number of meals in a different part of Portugal to draw attention to regional dishes and producers in hopes of disseminating culinary traditions to diners. We dispatched Monocle correspondent Ivan Cavallo to the Minho region to catch up with Rodriguez to learn more about his programme bringing together local customs and flavours. In the Alto Minho, in the high north of Portugal, a mountain stream cuts through the landscape, as it has done for millennia. This bucolic corner of the country is where Lisbon chef, João Rodriguez, has journeyed, leaving behind his job at Michelin restaurant Feitoria after 13 years to embark on a special gastronomic tour of Portugal. Known as Residencia, this project sees Rodriguez 
visit a different region of Portugal each month, where he teams up with talented local producers in unique venues to prepare lunches and dinners for guests. Rather than a mere pop-up restaurant, the initiative is an extension of Projecto Materia that Origa started in 2016. Materia is a non-profit network of local food producers, from wild oyster fishermen to vegetable growers, who Rodriguez brought together so up-and-coming chefs across the country could source quality regional products in their kitchens. Residencia now works in the opposite direction, taking diners out to the countryside to meet producers. So my idea behind this uh, project of uh, Residencia was uh, when I left uh, the restaurant in, in uh, April last year, uh, we decided to make a strategy, so to, to begin new projects. Uh, and the idea with this was to bring something that we already did with Projeto Materia, uh, that involved bringing people uh, towards the, the producers. So we wanted people to feel the, um, the difficulties that sometimes producers have and they don't, and average people, they don't uh, value. So the idea behind it is uh, when you go and you feel the wind, the heat, uh, the, the hours of labor, the, the toughness of the ground, uh, you know, the slopes getting up on the slopes down on the valleys, then you feel uh, in your own uh, person how difficult it is. That's why we decided to do this project because uh, we think that it's quite important to make people travel because now everything is uh, concentrated in the, the big centers like Porto, Lisboa, in the Algarve, which is kind of different. But we need people to travel, to see, to experience, to smell, to eat and to talk with people. You know, we live in a country that is uh, facing um, completely desertification of the interior and the, the, even the population of these little small towns are getting very old, very aged. So there's a big crisis, not only because there's no one there, but no one to keep on doing the traditions and to keep on doing these things that in the, in the last uh, minute, in the, in, when you see it, are the identity of, our, of your own country. Each month for Residencia, Rodriguez organizes a select number of meals in out-of-the-way places in regions such as Trazos Monts or Beira Alta to call attention to these forgotten parts of the country. Walking tours to meet farmers and experience the landscape are part of the package. Special venues, like the thermal baths of Melgaso during my visit, are selected as dining rooms, where Rodriguez, together with local partner chefs and wineries, offer regional ingredients and recipes, sometimes adding contemporary twists. So the second round of residence is in Minho, and uh, we started to look around for producers, and we, of course, we already knew uh, a few ones from here, but then it, it is important if you are in Melgaço that we are doing it right now in Melgaço, to use local producers. So for us, it's really good to try to know a few of them. And we found a very interesting producer of uh, uh, Buckfast uh, uh, bees. He's a beekeeper and totally organic and uh, he's, he's making a incredible honey. So we, we used it on the menu. Of course, we have the uh, cattle breed called Cascena. 
which is a wild wild cow that lives on the mountains. We tried to make in the menu that we did today, we had to try to use the same products but in a different way. So we used the honey in order to make a miso, in order to serve it with, with octopus. And normally we don't serve octopus with nothing sweet. We just make it with olive oil, a little bit of smoked pepper, uh, uh, red pepper and uh, salt. And here we used a, lot, a little bit of miso, sweet miso, uh, to give it a little more uh, life. And I think people really enjoyed it and we used the honey for that. So the, and, and for instance, for the, for the beef, uh, we have no tradition of tartare, of eating raw meat. So here we, we made a, a, a tartare of cascena and like a little bit of a provo uh, provocation, but uh, it worked really well. The success of Residencia shows that Rodriguez is onto something much deeper than a mere culinary experience. He brings diners in touch with the gastronomic culture of their country as they meet face-to-face -face with farmers, fishermen, and growers, those who are the keepers not only of important knowledge, but also the identity of a nation. For Monocle, in Melgaso, I'm Ivan Carvalho. Thanks to Ivan for the report. Up next, the week's food and drink headlines. Here is Monocle's Monica Lillis. Farmers in Uganda are growing a new variety of coffee bean that is more resistant to climate change. The Liberica excelsa will rival existing strains such as Arabica and Robusta and will better withstand the heat, drought and disease exacerbated by global warming. Around 200 farmers have been growing and selling the bean locally and if successful, the aim is to export it worldwide. Peru has become the world's largest exporter of blueberries according to recently published figures. In 2022, the country sold more than 1.24 billion euros worth of the berry and recorded an almost 80% year-on-year increase in exports in the first two months of this year. This means Peru is now the world's third largest producer behind China and the USA. And a South Korean art student who ate a banana that was part of an installation by Italian artist Maurizio Catalan said he did so because he was hungry. Nohun Su was filmed by his friend removing the banana, which was taped to a wall at the Liam Museum of Art in Seoul and eating it in front of a crowd of bewildered onlookers. Catalan, the sculptor and performance artist based in New York, was informed of the incident, but simply said it was not a problem. Those are the week's food and drink headlines. Now back to Marcus. Thanks, Monica. You are with Monocle Radio. Now, for many people around the world, pouring milk on your cereal in the morning doesn't feel like something too significant. In fact, milk has a unique place in global politics, society and culture. A new exhibition at Welcome Collection in London explores this and Monocle's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs went along and filed this report. Milk's an extraordinary substance because it uh, is a very everyday substance that we take for granted. But if you start to shine a light on it, then you really start to see how the kind of politics of our, of our country operate, how the kind of food system operates, uh, what systems govern those things and the inequalities within those systems. Honor Bedard is one of the curators behind Milk at London's Welcome Collection. 
At first glance, the topic might seem a strange choice for a major exhibition of artworks and historical artefacts. But it quickly becomes apparent that the white liquid is a rich source of curatorial material and calcium. So a kind of key question is how has cow's milk come to be seen as so essential to a diet in the UK? Uh, what are the forces that shape the ways that we feed our infants? How has milk been used to tie ideas of health to whiteness? Um, and perhaps crucially, how uh, do we value milk and those who produce it? Around two thirds of the world's population have some difficulty digesting milk. So how did it become the staple that we see it as today? I mean, I think a key part of that, of course, is colonialism and cultural imperialism that helped to spread milk and milk drinking around the globe. And so that very much started with the kind of colonial settlers who brought uh, dairy breeds into different, uh, their kind of different parts of the empire. And these were breeds that were much higher milk yield. But it was also kind of based on a, an idea of kind of white superiority so that the idea that British or European agricultural systems were somehow better. Um, and this very much ignored the kind of indigenous uh, use and management of the land that was in, kind of built on kind of incredible kind of knowledge of the land um, and a very kind of deep and complex uh, systems of management. And it, and it very much carried through um, as we kind of found the technologies to uh, preserve milk in different ways. So powdered milk, tinned milk, condensed milk, that very much helped to kind of, I guess, create a culture of milk drinking in other parts of the world because milk could be exported. So as I say, in the early days, it was very much about kind of British or European colonisers trying to create ways to kind of keep their own diets going in the countries that they colonised. But then it very much became about using European nutritional science to justify the kind of imposition of these practices, you know, as I say, based on an idea of superiority. Um, and of course, you know, also that was boosting the kind of the profit of the dairy industry and in places like the UK and America. Drink your milk, kids. I don't want milk. Milk's for babies. Yeah, babies. Well, yeah. Well, I happen to know that milk helps build... One of the interesting things for us was how in the States... The uh, United States Department of Agriculture are responsible for both the, creating the federal dietary guidelines, but they're also responsible for the health of the dairy industry. And this sort of conflict of interest seems to sort of go unnoticed. So when you think about um, government kind of funded uh, advertising campaigns like the Got Milk campaign, for example, you know, these are incredibly powerful forces that are uh, you know, encouraging people to drink milk. Got milk. And while Big Dairy understandably plays a big part in the exhibition, there are, of course, many other types of milk. But on top of almond, soy and, my preferred, oat milk, there was one particularly surprising fact about another kind of milk. I think a lot of people aren't aware that human milk is now being sold quite widely online. And that's being uh, purchased not just by parents, but also people like bodybuilders who think that it can promote muscle growth or people are buying it for fetish use or perhaps in health enthusiasts who think that it might cure health problems or boost immune systems. Um, and in the 21st century, I think we've got to start thinking about how we can regulate uh, the kind of sale of, of human milk. And that brings with it very complicated questions about how we value human milk and particularly we value those who produce it. 
The Welcome Collections exhibition exposes the deep complexities of the seemingly everyday substance and, spilling over into questions of gender, politics, health and colonialism, it's clear that the story of milk, or at least our relationship with milk, is far from over. Monaco, Sophie Monahan Coombs there, and if you'd like to visit Welcome Collections Exhibition Milk, you have until the 10th of September. And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we are back with a new episode again on Friday at 2000 London time. That's at midday in Portland, Oregon. Also, remember our spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods, where we tour some of the world's tastiest destinations. And obviously you'll find many more reports on great hospitality from the brand's new edition of Monocle magazine. I am Marcus Hippi. The programme was researched by Monica Lillis and our studio engineers were Callum McLean and Jack Chewers. Once again, we finish this programme with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. Here is Garbage with Milk. Thanks for listening and until next week. Uh-huh.